It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. If you have a super racist Uncle Tony, and you have more of a kind of racist Aunt Edna, you might, as you're trying to learn these techniques, you might first focus on Edna before you move to Tony because you need to practice, and it's a lifelong thing anyway. You'll get around to Tony. So I guess my point is is that if you look at yourself as involved in a decades-long thing for your own life and maybe a centuries-long thing for society, then your own, like, how you manage yourself might look a little different. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Fancy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Hello, everyone. 
welcome to Fancy Politics on this Friday. Not much to talk about in the world, really. Just, you know, stable. Things are stable. Today, we are going to start off by addressing everyone's burning questions about how we felt about the Daily's Mitch McConnell coverage. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the State of the Union. But our main focus today is our conversation with Dr. David Camped, who is an expert on helping white people act as allies around racial issues. And we think this is the best contribution that we here at Pantsuit Politics can make to the situation in Virginia. And it is a situation. Woo! It is a situation and a half. And so we've called in a professional to help us talk about it. And I loved this conversation and hope that you really enjoy it as much as we did. Before we talk about Mitch, which we spend a lot of time doing in our lives, um, we wanted to say, of course, Thank you, thank you, thank you for the incredible outpouring of support from all of you on Tuesday, the day of the launch of our book. I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. A Guide to Grace Filled Political Conversation. We had an amazing launch day, y'all. We got up to like 200 and something of all the books on Amazon. We have almost 100 reviews, the photos of you and your children and your boxes of books. I just, it was un believable. We don't have anything to judge it against, <laughs> but it felt amazing. And it was, I mean, I think it was one of the best days of my life. I'm not going to lie. And it's a beginning. And so we're going to keep talking about the book. We appreciate you staying excited with us. And on Tuesday, you're going to hear from Kelly, the mastermind behind the idea of getting this book in the hands of every member of Congress for a minute. I had a lovely chat with Kelly about this initiative that I can't wait to share with you on Tuesday. And I agree with Sarah. Thank you. Thank you seems like a poor way to express what I feel about this, but I'll just keep saying thank you for now. So when everybody started messaging us, the daily, the daily, if you listen to the daily on Tuesday about Mitch McConnell, my first reaction was, I'm too excited about my book. I don't want to think about Mitch McConnell. But then I was like, okay, fine, I'll listen. So I listened expecting to be so mad, as I usually am when I think about Mitch McConnell. But I have to be honest, I ended that podcast episode, and I just felt really sorry for him. And I know that is a weird reaction to somebody with that much power. But that sort of personal peek into his mind and into his motivations, it left me feeling so empty and honestly a little sad for him. We had gotten so many messages about this episode that I, too, was braced for it. So I listened to it yesterday when I had a few minutes by myself. I wasn't scheduled to be doing anything. And I decided, here's how I'm going to prep for this conversation. I'm going to do legs up the wall, the yoga pose, while I listen to this. And so that is what I did. So I literally was upside down listening to this conversation with Mitch McConnell. And I had a similar reaction I don't know that I feel sorry for him as much as I feel sad in some Mm -hmm. ways and sad at what a lifetime in politics can do to a person. Mm -hmm. I thought it was a really helpful interview, and I was so glad they included the backstory that he really wanted to be a baseball player and didn't have Mm -hmm. enough talent to do that professionally. And so he instantly pivoted to politics and found that he had a skill for that. And I think that just explained a lot to me. It explained Mm -hmm. to me why being more of a tactician politically matters to him instead of being an advocate. You know what I mean? 
Absolutely. That there's no real animation with regards to I saw something that I thought was wrong or I experienced something that I wanted to change. Like it's always been competitive. It's always been from that lens of winning something. Yep. Absolutely. And there's there's, you know, I just finished Doris Kearns Goodwin Leadership in Turbulent Times, which is about Lincoln and FDR, Teddy Roosevelt and LBJ. And these were very competitive men. Right. There was not there was not a sense of, you know, tactic doesn't matter and I don't want to win. But it was motivated by, like, I want to find my place in history. I want to find out where I can make a difference, especially like there's a lot of really touching stories about LBJ and like you said, that the tactics and the political ambition were laid so bare. And I thought, you know, I don't want to win anything bad enough to check my personal values at polling every single time. Like it was sad when you would hear Bill Clinton described like that. There's just a there's a repulsion when you hear that from people. When you hear no matter what side of the aisle they're on, I think we all have this sort of ugh when you hear, oh well, how does it poll? How does it poll? How does it poll? Like it's just so empty and it just leaves me feeling gross. I thought the discussion about Justice Scalia's death was also informative. Mm-hmm. It was a real look into who this person is and what he's about, the way that he was able to say, I reflected momentarily on our relationship and immediately moved to, would the Democrats allow a Republican president to fill this seat? Mm-hmm. Wow, that took my breath away. I had to stop it for a second, even in my serene yoga pose, and think about that. Yep. So I appreciated the journalism at work in that episode, because I do feel, even though Mitch McConnell is my senator and has been my entire life, I do feel like I got information about him that I didn't know. I would have guessed it a lot of it, but having it in such a concrete way and hearing his own words reflecting on his career was really instructive. Well, and I think shame on us, particularly as Kentuckians. The part that was so impactful for me, too, is when they described him as realizing being an advocate for campaign finance for money and politics would not impact his electoral outcome. Like people didn't care. And I thought, shame on us, Kentucky. Shame on us, Kentucky Democratic Party. Like shame on us for not saying this is what this guy's staking his flag on. Having more money in politics. Does that sound like a good idea to you? The fact that he figured out nobody cared is so upsetting to me. Well, it was just so interesting because None of his reflections about his career have anything to do with Kentucky. Yep. And when he runs in Kentucky, there is almost no argument about what is significant in his career. Almost none. There's never a substantive conversation about Mitch McConnell. It is a conversation about longevity and about the flaws of his opponent. That's it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because he does, he has an impact. It's not a significant impact in that that I believe the quality of life or the economic future or any of the sort of long-term outcomes for the state are different. But at the same time, he has spent a lot of time and energy doling out rewards, federal money, federal influence across the state in a lot of small, more like locally impactful ways. It's tactical. He's done what you need to do Mm -hmm. to get enough people at least not wanting him to be an enemy. Yep. That he continues to win here. And I think he will continue to win here. I think someone who can beat him is going to have to be a real star 
I think there are some possibilities for that. I also think the state as a whole is going to have to get fed up with hearing about Mitch McConnell in such a negative way in the national news. And that just hasn't happened yet. And probably a big part of the reason that Mitch McConnell will continue to get support here is because of his stance on the judiciary and the way a lot of people continue to prioritize conservative justices the way he does, which leads us, I think, nicely, maybe not nicely, tragically, I don't know, leads (laughs) us to the State of the Union. I feel very affirmed that the State of the Union Mm -hmm. as a thing should cease to exist following Mm -hmm. the delivery of the address this week. I think you have some critical mass on your side. There's a lot of reporting out there. A lot of people saying, why do we do this? What is the point? What's what's this about? It gets less mature and more ridiculous every single time. Now, I know that you did not have a positive reaction to some of the outbursts. I, however, I thought they were sort of human moments. I particularly enjoyed the happy birthday singing. And the female representatives sort of jubilantly jumping to their feet. And I just kind of felt like it exposed, like, especially when he got broken from his his teleprompter flow, it exposed the humanness and like, what are we doing here? Like kind of said the silliness of it. So I was not as mad at that part because I feel like the pomp and circumstances totally gone at this point anyway. I don't know if was the pomp and circumstances the only reason we were doing it to begin with. I'm just not sure. That's why, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready to I'm ready to jump ship. I'm on board. I thought those moments that felt human to you felt like this event has officially jumped the shark. Yeah, that's fair. Because the pomp and circumstance is almost all that was left that felt dignified about it. If you're trying to increase trust in institutions, which I like as a test that you've developed for lots of things around here, Sarah, I think that doesn't do it, right? It mm-hmm. just It just looks like we're not even pretending to take any of this seriously anymore. Right. I have felt more troubled about the substance of the speech since I've reflected on it than I did even in the moments of listening to it. I think there were some really undemocratic sentiments expressed. I mean, here's what I want to say first about about the text of the speech. I don't like Stephen Miller for lots of reasons, lots of moral and ethical reasons. But just, can I say, on the most pragmatic level, he is a terrible writer and should not be allowed to write things. All the, like, weird alliterations and the zero segue and the clearly conflicting sections, I just don't let him write things anymore. I know there's nobody left in the White House, but... Ugh, he's so bad at it. Well, one of his Dr. Seuss moments is what has really been chilling to me the more I've thought about it. When he said, if there is going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation. Ugh. First of all, of course, peace can't exist with war. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. But secondly, this idea that Congress cannot get laws passed if they are exercising their oversight authority, that's scary. I think everybody had a like, you could, I felt I had a visceral reaction. It felt like the room had a visceral reaction. That was a, a bridge too far, bridge too far to cross. And again, every time I think I couldn't be surprised by something outrageous he says or does. And every time I'm like, wow, I didn't. Okay, here we are again. Here we are. The speech made me a little bit nauseous in the way a roller coaster might because Mm -hmm. one second we're talking about D-Day 
And then we're talking about New York's abortion law. And then we're talking about childhood cancer and curing HIV. But then we're over here into partisan witch hunts. I mean, it was just really disorienting. I'll tell you, I was surprised that he weighed in on abortion. And then I was mad at myself for being surprised because it is so obviously Mm -hmm. the 2020 campaign tactic. See what happens when Democrats are in power. It goes too far. It's just so gross. The fact that this is not related to State of the Union, but I need to get off my off my chest. The fact that Steve Scalise is trying to do a discharge petition about partial birth abortion when you dudes have been in charge for two years and you could have put forth all manner of abortion legislation and you did not because it wasn't a good issue for you then makes me so, no, it's not even because it wasn't a good issue there. Because you actually don't care about it until you can manipulate it for electoral outcome makes me so mad. And it's so, it's just so laid clear with somebody like Donald Trump who could not care less about abortion. You know he couldn't. Come on. We're all pretending. I don't even know. Are, are some of us pretending or are we just, we know what's happening here. It's just, blech. What did you think of Stacey Abrams' response? I really liked it. First of all, I was glad they had people in the rooms. I don't like it when they're in the room by themselves. I think that's weird. So I'm glad we've added people. It was still a little stiff, but they have to get so much in in 10 minutes. I mean, it's such a short response time. I think she's so good, though, on the, like, storytelling. This is what happened in my family. I believe her. Like, I believe her financial struggles and the healthcare struggles. And so when she talks about that, I think it's so, so good. I like that she immediately called him down the shutdown, which he conveniently never mentioned. Sort of just lay the hypocrisy of this. Our state of the union is strong after our government couldn't function for 35 days was really good. Yeah, I liked it. I thought it was brave of her to do it as someone who just lost an election. Mm -hmm. I think she is personally very compelling. I like listening to her. I thought it was kind of all over the place, too. Again, I'm just Mm -hmm. I don't know what successful would mean in this situation because the whole thing is so dumb. But you definitely can see that she's a great messenger. And I like that the party said, yeah, we know she lost, but she's a great messenger. Yeah. And we're going with this. Yeah, I agree. We know that many of you are in Virginia, thinking about Virginia, watching Virginia, wondering what on earth is happening. Instead of getting into the details of every elected official's transgressions there, we are going to share now with you our conversation about how white people can converse with other white people who don't see racism as a problem. And Dr. David Camp's White Ally Toolkit Initiative, all of this, I think, is a really good window into how to have big picture, productive conversations about what's happening in Virginia today. And we hope you enjoy it. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, 
Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. We are so excited to be joined by Dr. David Camp today. Dr. Camp, thank you so much for being here. Tell us about the White Ally Toolkit Project. I'm happy to be here too. Thank you so much. You guys are doing great work and I'm happy to be a part of it. The White Ally Toolkit is dedicated to shifting the total number of white folks who basically don't think that racism is real. Uh, About 55% of white folks think that racism against whites is just as significant as a problem as racism against people of color. And the White Ally Toolkit is uh, dedicated to shifting that number to 45% by 2025. So essentially, Mm. we're trying to move 16 million white people's opinion. And the way that we're trying to do that is to try to mobilize the white folks who do think racism is real and to give them better conversational skills for engaging uh, their mamas and their cousins and their coworkers and their neighbors to use 
methods of compassion-based, empathy-based listening and interaction in order to effectuate that change. So that's what it's for. I love how you describe your method as making an invitation and reflecting on your own experience before looking outward. Can you tell us more about that and how you came to this philosophy about having these conversations? Sure. The core technology of the project, if you were to call it that, is something called the RACE method of managing a conversation. And RACE stands for reflect, ask, connect, expand. And so basically the idea is that you're trying to change the conversational dynamic and shift it from their opinion or a conversation about opinion to a conversation about experiences. Hmm. Uh, I'll just briefly lay out those steps. So reflect means you get ready for that conversation and get ready even in advance of the conversation, you get ready. Most white people know the top three or four things that uh, other white people say that are racially problematic. So you can get ready for that it, even before the moment. And in the moment, you want to reflect. Also, if somebody says something, you want to take at least take a breath or even go to the bathroom and get ready for that. You want to calm yourself down and center yourself. Mm -hmm. So that's a reflect. Then ask. What you're trying to do is ultimately shift the conversation to storytelling and away from opinion. At a big picture level, you're trying to shift from opinion to storytelling and agree before you disagree. So the ask is, instead of going at their opinion, or you might ask a little bit more about their opinion, you want them to tell you a story that relates to their opinion. So, so that's an interesting way of looking at that. Tell me, uh, when was the last time something happened to you that let you know that was true? Or you could go back in the past. That's an interesting way of seeing that. I think I see it differently, but I want to know, when was the first time you started thinking like that? What happened that made you start thinking like that? So you ask a question to get them to tell you a story that is behind their opinion. So that's ask. Then connect is where you try to find something you can agree with. So you find something embedded within what they said. Uh, they think that black people are lazy. You don't believe that, but you believe hard work is important. They think people shouldn't complain about the police. You think there is police brutality, but you do think there are good cops out there. You find something embedded within it. And then, so you tell them a personal story that illustrates your belief that they might nod their heads at because it's aligned with them. And then after all, after then, then you tell them some personal story that animates your belief that race matters and racism is real. And this is based on the idea that storytelling is more effective than facts and people don't like to be shamed. And it is through connection that you can influence people. Sarah, I wrote down from Dr. Camp's website this this phrase, allies go too quickly to data, evidence, concepts, and metaphors that need to be in the arsenal, but if used at the wrong time or with the wrong tone, they can be counterproductive. And I thought about how you always say that you want to give people the perfect long read and solve it. Yep. I just know that I'm going to share that ta Coates article, and they're going to read it, and everyone's going to agree with me. And I just, I, I cling to that so strongly, even though I know in my heart and even my mind that exactly what you said is right, that what we're we're battling here is experiences that have created a story and no amount of statistics is going to undo their personal experiences. You know, it's what we, what we do. As you were talking, I thought, man, what we do is so paradoxical in a way. We say, hey, you don't understand the black person's experience, but I will totally negate and refuse to understand the experience that got you to that opinion. You know what I mean? Like we, we want, we want them to understand other people's experience, but refuse to try to understand what experience got them to that place. I hadn't thought about it that way. They thank you for that. I hadn't thought about it that way. Exactly. That's really uh that's a helpful reframe. Part of what 
is involved in that. We do have judgment about people's interpretation of their experience. What you said is exactly correct, but part of what that sort of illustrates is, you know, people have experiences and they there's a lens to which they interpret it. That lens can have its own. It can be propagandized. You know, we we it can uh, by a whole thought regime that tells people, for example, to deny experiences of racism. So um, as, a, as one illustration. So part of the reason we deny their experiences is because we know that they're, they can have, they might have spurious conclusions, but that doesn't, just because we think they're spurious, it's not spurious to them. If you're really trying to move somebody, you have to tap into their experience and get them to potentially revisit that or to validate it. That, that Notice what I talked about was you validate at least some aspect of their experience, because because it is, it is they can trust you. Part of what we're trying to deal with is that there's an implicit kind of tribalism, and so when you challenge people's beliefs, two things happen. One is they can start to see you as a member of the opposing tribe. That tribalism is deeply ingrained, but there's also the backfire effect. And you know you can look it up. It's it, it does a Wikipedia page, so it must be true. Basically, the backfire effect is if people hear facts that are contradicting their opinion. They just double down on their opinion and decide that the facts are wrong. So the reason you're going through the ask and connect phases is to basically lower their resistance to your messaging. And then you deliver your message, not in terms of not in terms of facts and concepts and metaphors and long articles, although those articles can be nice. What you want to do is to take them inside your experience. That's why you tell them an experience story that animates your belief. What I really struggle with, though, is that is as a white person, I guess I feel I feel a trepidation talking about my experience when it comes to race as a white ally because I don't want to do what we've always done, which is prioritize the white experience. So how do I sort of deal with that? Let, let me illustrate that in one particular example. So in my mind, the most fundamental issue of misunderstanding in our culture is the one about unconscious bias. And that's manifested in like the whole, I am colorblind, I don't think about color, therefore I don't have to worry about being racist, et cetera. And that's a function of the way that we, the civil rights movement, as awesome as it was, sort of cast being a quote unquote racist as a moral crime. And now everybody's trying to run from being a moral criminal. And mm -hmm. we didn't know as much as we know now, there's been advances in, in understanding social psychology and neurobiology in the past 50 years. And we didn't really understand how unconscious bias works as well as we do now. So the result of that is that there's a whole bunch of people who don't understand unconscious bias and might be in resistance to it. And so, uh, and, and that all supports the I'm colorblind, I don't, I don't see color. And so, it, it, which, you know, which isn't actually true, but in any case, it's, it's certainly aspirational. And if we, if you don't have the notion of unconscious bias, then it's easy to do that. Now, you don't have to be a person of color to talk about your experience of unconscious bias from the standpoint of having it. Mm -hmm. But what you have to do is get past your own shame or embarrassment that you are still subject to having these thoughts. So what we do in many of these workshops is get people to get in touch with and learn how to tell just their a story in which they manifested unconscious bias, even if only in their minds. Because mm -hmm. part, of, part of what supports collective white denial about this is the white folks who don't believe racism is real, I'm free of this. And then the white folks like, y'all who think racism is real don't want to own up to this, don't own, own up to having these, you wouldn't decide that it is the other white people who are the problem. <laughs> so, so you have a joint collusion of silence on that. 
And then that makes it more possible to still believe that racism isn't real. And so part of what we try to teach people is this is not the only thing, of course. Learn how to tell your own stories about when those thoughts crossed your mind, when you clutched your purse or crossed the street or thought, wow, that guy's pretty smart, you know, and, 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 but no, <laughs> and to learn how to tell that story and become courageous and willing to tell that story. And so, again, to have the experience of a person of color to tell your own story that illustrates that, well, if I am having these thoughts, have you ever had these? Huh, if we're having these thoughts, maybe the idea that racism isn't real is untenable because we know we're good, we're good white people. We have these thoughts. So it's so as you said, it's the invitation to these other white folk to own up to their own experiences, to see them, that is the beginning of trying to open their minds up to a different social reality than they're willing to see now. I think that's so helpful because I've attended lots of unconscious bias training sessions and always found myself leaving with now what? Okay, I understand that my brain is doing this thing. What do we do now? Because the the tone of those trainings is always patient and forgiving and supportive. Like, this is just what your brain does. And I always sense that like, okay, now knowing this, I should act in a certain way. But I'm never sure what that way is because I do feel like, well, I'm trying to filter what my brain does and behave as a good white person, as you said, from that place. So I love the idea of, okay, next, it is actually articulating and owning up to those expressions of unconscious bias to other white people so that we can all kind of come along together here. That's right. I hear you. You you could go further. I, I would argue that a weakness in the inclusion, you know, the diversity, equity, and inclusion industrial complex is we have too many trainings that do not focus on what to do. So I think that, so yes, unconscious bias trainings can have that problem, and trainings about power dynamics can have that problem. A whole bunch of trainings have that problem. They're not sufficiently focused on what do people actually do. So the White Ally Toolkit's uh, focus is precisely on the question of what people can do. And so, like when I do when I do diversity when I do unconscious bias trainings in a corporate setting, not under White Ally Toolkit, I what that's about for me is to try to create a culture in an organization where we can talk about this honestly. So the what to do is to start talking about it, right? Mm -hmm. So that's almost implicit. But in, in 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 community settings with White Ally Toolkit, or even some institutional settings for that too, the focus is on like if you're trying to advance the cause of equity, then your own capacity to tell your story to influence other people is vital that is the to do yes we can also talk about like how can we contribute to the equity conversation more broadly but the equity those equity initiatives are not going to work if too many people are in silent resistance to them right so you know we have to we have to learn how to be personally persuasive and that means educate through experience don't berate through facts mm. i think the now what is particularly relevant with the current situation in Virginia with the governor and the attorney general both admitting to wearing blackface in their past, I think it's reached such a level that we are having a bigger conversation than individual actions, which I think is always where it feels stalled out to me when we talk about race. I think that people want to make it, like you said, like either you're a moral criminal, which seems to me how the conversation about Ralph Northam started and it made me uncomfortable because I think that that's not how to keep this conversation going. And I really loved some of your thoughts about how 
we make this a more productive conversation and cultural moment than just a thumbs up or thumbs down on Ralph Northam and Mark Herring. Part of that thumbs up, thumbs down thing does, like it turns being a quote unquote racist or having these thoughts into like this moral contagion. This, oh no, I don't have, that's not me, that's them, and that, that person needs to be shunned. And we don't wrestle with the, the fact it's a pervasive issue. I think that the fact that the hearing came out, the attorney general came out with that, it might be actually helpful to the yeah. public conversation. It's not just like Ralph Northup is some mm-hmm. weirdo. A whole bunch of white folks were doing that. Mm-hmm. So, so we, so we need to make it more broad anyway. Uh, that so, so, so I think that as as unfortunate as it is that he did that, I think it is is potentially fortunate that this has come out, and which is why I advocated for North of not resigning, certainly not resigning right away, but going through a private education process with some public reporting about what he's learning multiple times going on C-SPAN, getting some big celebrity that pe- makes people watch it, you know, whether it's Oprah or Bill Clinton or Obama or somebody who's who's legit and people want to see also, and then report about like, okay, Ta-Nehisi Coates had me read these two books and answer these questions. Here's what, I, here's what I've been learning in the past month. Because, because then we could all really think about that. Imagine had something that's like that happened with Roseanne Barr or with Megyn Kelly and under pressure from their bosses. We'd be in a whole different place. Right now, what we do is people, we decide, you know, oh, they're awful. When a whole bunch of people were awful, they're awful, they must get be gotten rid of. You know, when Megyn Kelly said that a whole, blackface wasn't a problem when she was a kid, like, it was a problem when she was a kid, but maybe not in her neighborhood. But we want to just, like, lambast her for being wrong. And, you know, she ain't that old. Blackface wasn't a problem when she was a kid. But it might not have been a problem where she was. And so... And, and the reason it's not is because people don't have racial literacy because we haven't had this conversation I'm talking about. Well, a whole bunch of white folks don't understand any of this. And, and as, as long as we keep doing this kind of like, oh, you're so sinful, you must go. We still won't have that conversation. And the lack of literacy will perpetuate itself. And then there'll be another one in, in six months. I know a lot of our listeners are having conversations about Virginia with people in their lives. And there's a moment that sounds something like this. We're all just out to get everybody who's ever made a mistake. How would you suggest that white allies respond to that moment in the conversation? I feel like that's where we get stuck a lot. There's a couple of different things on that. I tend to be, lean too progressive. You know, some of my friends say I'm not progressive enough, but I tend to be on the left. And one of the things I think that we are doing on the left is we're we sometimes lean toward this kind of purity thing mm-hmm. and, and and the people on the right complain about that as political correctness and we and and even that term political correctness gets used as a weapon on the other hand the purity thing that we're doing also becomes its own weapon and and th- so they're so even though they're responding in a way that is inappropriate and sometimes cynical they're pointing out something that's accurate and so part of what i think has to happen is is that we, who people on the left who um, have some, like they think that we're going too far in terms of that political correctness slash purity thing, we have to start speaking up about that. At least, if we don't not do it at the meeting, we at least do it with our conservative friends because they feel that. So, so on some level, that that only is do that for truth's sake, but also becomes a connecting point, right? Because if you if you're trying to to help them 
see the rest of your point of view as legit, then to the extent to which this goes back to what I said about the race method, the extent to which you can find some connecting point with them, that's useful to warm them up to other messages that you have that are more challenging. So that's one aspect of this. The other thing is if you can relate to the struggle to kind of move past these things. This is not like what I said before on unconscious bias. I think a lot of people feel like they're walking on eggshells around issues and people are going to attack them for saying the wrong thing and are, are nervous. I, and I know that a lot of white allies feel that. Even if they just talk about the nervousness. And don't even don't critique what I, what I just did was the critique of the left as too hair trigger and the outrage course being too ready to sing. Even if you just feel nervous as you're trying to make a connection with somebody and then because you're going to pivot to how the basis of all that critique is not completely ridiculous. And it's based on something that's important and grounded in historical patterns of dehumanization and minimization, et cetera. So your ultimate objective to try to influence somebody is to try to connect with them. So pieces of what they believe that they might take to take to a number 11 and you can see them to number three. Talk about that because that'll be a good precursor to when you're trying to have them think about something that they're not thinking about now. I think that totally makes sense. I think so often what has happened in my own conversations with other white people about race is that it's it becomes. I think there is I think you're absolutely correct about the purity. And the hair trigger reaction and everybody, you know, I think what it is, too, is everybody wants to prove because we've turned racism into this moral crime. If you are a person who who identifies as a white ally, there's this this rush to the gates to prove that you're the least racist, that you care the most, that you are the best white ally and you want to show that you're the most angry about this. You And, I, and so what we do is we, like you said, we create this sort of mob mentality and we're making it worse because we're making it more of a moral crime. We're making people feel more shame about it, less willing to talk about it, less willing to admit to their own biases. And it's not to say that there aren't some aspects of racism. And I, and maybe that's what it is. These aspects of racism that we actually all do sort of agree at this point, like blackface, everybody feels safe throwing somebody you know, onto the onto the fire for it. But it, it, it just it creates this sort of self-perpetuating cycle of we make it an individual moral crime and then we wonder why people can't see systematic racism. Well, at that and don't want to admit to being any uh, to having a piece of that crime. In right. This. So. So. So, yes, if we if we if we turn up the rhetoric to that kind of level, yeah, it's not surprising that people are like, oh, that's not me. Oh, uh-uh, mm-hmm. I like that. Right. Yep. So let me just say one more thing that. um might be a little controversial to some listeners. Uh, blackface is a big problem. It's a it's a problem, but I think it is is actually valuable to have somewhat variegated responses. There's different levels of crime, and I'll and I'll illustrate that in just stuff recently. I think that you can make a a, a distinction between the level of outrage that we should have for a little white girl trying to do something to her, to trying to do something to look like Beyonce, to be like Beyonce at the Halloween party. So trying to call upon the image of a particular celebrity is different than calling upon the trope that has been, that exists in our culture for 150 years that you're calling upon it. Like I ultimately think that those, those the guys in that picture were 
Like, I, who knows what was going on in that picture exactly? But I think that they were doing some meta commentary in that. They got, I mean, come on, you got a Klansman, Klansman mm-hmm. next to a, you know, a hyper image of a black guy. And I, as as horrible as that is, I think that is significantly worse than somebody trying to be Millie Vanilli, right? Or Michael Jackson, which he says is the other thing he did. Right. I think that we could say that's a too soon thing. Like, I, I'm older than y'all. Like, right now, you can kind of, like, comedians can kind of refer to the concept of making jokes about the Holocaust. They couldn't win in the 70s and 80s. Why? Mm-hmm. Too soon, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that the blackface, the, the, the Beyonce, Michael Jackson imitating Coolio is too soon. But that's, that's different than the thing I just talked about. And that itself is different than that guy from, the, from Florida who in 2006 was in blackface and drag as a hur- with the Hurricane, Hurricane Katrina victim, where he is cruelly mocking actual people who were victims of a calamity. I think as bad as the trope one is, that is at a whole different level of bad intention, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm just saying that right now, like the, the outrage machine, will they're all just blackface, don't do it. And I get don't do it, but I'm just saying I think that it is useful to 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 make some distinctions in, in terms of the intentionality of the person. And we can all decide that that's something you shouldn't do, but those are different levels of you're a, you are a moral leper for doing it. So, and, but even that distinction, like, you know, the, according to the progressive anti-racism world, it's all bad and it's all equally horrible. And it ain't equally horrible. <laughs> the intentions are different, right? We can all decide that we're not, we shouldn't do that, but those are, those are not the same thing morally. And from an intention standpoint, they're not, they're not the same thing morally. So, but yes. And I think we've all been in that moment where exactly what you said we know, like, you know, it's, if you're fully engaged in the left outrage, like, you sort of know, yeah, it's a spectrum. And the people you're arguing against also are just appealing to the, of course, there's a spectrum here, but people won't give an inch. And so that shuts the conversation down even more. You know, when one side is saying, surely we can see that there is a spectrum of behavior here. And the other outrage culture is saying, absolutely not, shut it down. Then I feel like that's another break. And that's a breakdown in the dialogue as well that I see over and over again. That's true, and that's true across a variety of issues on the left where we've come to a point of, like, the, 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 the fiercest critique is the one that most uh, eloquently articulates the damage caused by these historical things and, and, and feels it most deeply. And so that, that's true. You can look across a number of issues on that. And, of course, there's been historical crimes and historical uh, hierarchies that need to be redressed. So that's all true. But I, there's also something else at work. Which is that, as you said, like a whole bunch of white folks in terms of their allyship, like they 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 want to be responsive to the most fiercest, harshest critiquing black person they've ever heard of. So mm-hmm. even if those people are not in the room, they're trying to be responsive to that voice mm-hmm. instead of listening to the person in front of them. Listen to themselves. Yeah, totally. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, 
And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. In terms of, because we were just talking about, right, if if a person has a variegated response to blackface, for example, or to some racially problematic statement that the most hardcore critics are going to call, well, that's racist and that needs that person needs to be shunned. And if part of, I think part of what happens is that white allies want to like sign on to that most fierce critique because they think they should do that, right? And and so this this listening to listening person in front of them, but also just listening to their own judgment and deciding. Well, I'm going to put that aside because I'm going to listen to the black voices I know. And the reason I'm bringing it up is this. Like part of the reason that as we move forward and allies become more effective, part of what's going to happen is that you're going to have people of color telling allies that if your racist uncle says something problematic, you need to slam them, you need to walk out, you need to you need to not deal with them. And if, if your black friend is telling you that, that doesn't necessarily mean you should do that. 
Mm-hmm. But you need to decide, okay, if my effort, if I'm the person to reach, if this person is my work, this person is, is if this is the person I'm supposed to work on, I don't care if David or Daquan or Keisha or whatever wants me to be mad now and slam them. I'm doing, I'm playing a longer game with this person. And so I, I, I'm making a decision about, you know, I'm, I am committed to trying to work with this person over a period of time, even if David tells me I shouldn't be doing that. So that's a whole other, that's the other thing. I think ultimately as we move, as we move closer to the beloved community, yes, we need to do some prioritization of, of color voices, but it doesn't, people call it not always correct. And so part of what we have to move towards is like, how do we, if we're truly in a beloved community and working as partners and allies, how do we appropriately give weight to special wisdom, but also recognize that no human being or no group is without flaws or systemic flaws in their thinking? From where do you source the well of patience that your work must require. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's exactly I was going to say. Man, it just takes so much patience because I just want to be like, well, this statistic shows that fairness doesn't play a part in lots of people's lives. Moving on. Oh, man, so hard. <laughs> well, so part of what I think allies have to do is you got to look at yourself as a resource to the anti-racism movement and you got to use your resource well. So on the one hand, I want like, I want allies to like be always ready to take advantage of the current situation in front of them. And on the other hand, there are times in which like you you need to you need to demure because you have a limited amount of energy. And frankly, let's be honest, all allies don't have the same level of passion or commitment about all of this as other as everybody else. So you need to play, you need to max out your own work within your both capacity and your interest, recognizing because because I don't want what I don't want is people like going through some phase where they feel like they need to attack every racially problematic statement. And then next year they moved on to other issues because they got tired of that and it burned themselves out. Right. So there's a balance on that. But I think that part of, part of what uh, I think allies need to do is to look at themselves as like, this is a lifelong thing. We could all try to dis- the, the solve racism tomorrow. And it was, we wouldn't, uh, it would still take us decades to solve it. The problem has been in baked in for 400 years. So on the one hand, we need a certain certain sense of urgency. On the other hand, we need to have a long run point of view. So that means that if you have a super racist Uncle Tony and you have more of a kind of racist Aunt Edna, you might, as you're trying to learn these techniques, you might first focus on Edna before you move to Tony because you need to practice and it's a lifelong thing anyway. You'll get around to Tony. So I guess my point is, is that if you look at yourself as involved in a decades long thing for your own life and maybe a centuries long thing for society, then your own, like how you manage yourself is might look a little different. You're not, you're not sprinting all the time. Now, I don't want people to be lazy, but again, the reason we have the electoral result we have is because too many white folks didn't talk to their mamas and their cousins and their sisters and look who, look, look who we elected. That's how this project came about in the first place. So it's not like I'm, you know, I'm not trying to have people do, go with all deliberate speed, but I am saying we need, people need to step up their game, but I'm just saying that you, you need to tap into a kind of a long run perspective about it. In terms of patience, my last thing about that, what the, the good news about this project and these methods is that the same methods that produce more social change also produce more relationship healing. Like, like all these people complaining about, like, they can't go home for Thanksgiving and they can't talk to their family and all this. Well, 
part of the reason you can't talk to them is because you're using the wrong strategy. That's part of the reason. If you if you if you're trying to make connections with them, it's going to feel different than if you're trying to attack them. So the good news is is that these strategies of trying to be more compassionate are also more loving. And if you want to feel more connected to people, it's the it's the same set of strategies anyway. It's just using them in a smart, intentional way. So yes, it requires patience, but it also you're tapping into your desire to connect to people and your perhaps even your desire to love people as part of your motivation. As you're talking about the long game and our goal, I heard you use the term beloved community. Can you tell us what that means to you? Well, the beloved community is my unstudied understanding is that that community, which is a multiracial community, multi-class, and has many fewer hierarchies and distinctions of people's value than now. Right now, the way our society works, Certain people are valued more than others. Certain people have way more than others. Certain people are considered essentially more legit and worthy of attention, focus, and resources. In the beloved community, those distinctions are significantly diminished than what they are now. And uh, there are times in which we're all working together on some sort of social project of social change. But there's also times in which we're just in community and we're not focused on some task accomplishment. And we're in in that community. We're valuing each other's diversity of perspectives and cultural backgrounds and all of that. We're enjoying those distinctions as well as our common humanity. Now, how often do we actually experience that? Pretty infrequently. So part of what I think that the that is important in the white ally movement and anti-racist movement in general, we need a whole bunch of time where we're doing our tasks better. But we also need to remember it's not just about the task. We're also, we also need to spend sufficient amount of time on uh, community, uh, relationship development, fellowship, and trying to experience a beloved community, if only for little periods. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, and so that is the, that's, we need to remember to do that enough so that we, are, we remember why we're doing this, why we're, go, why we're going to these classes and why we're working on ourselves and why we're in discussion groups to try to learn these techniques etc., because we're, we, we need to remind ourselves now and then of what we're trying to get to, what we want either ourselves to get to or our children or our grandchildren. I love that. Tell us where people can find those action items, your workshops and, and all this, connection points. The core website is whiteallytoolkit.com. And of course, we have a Facebook page at White Ally Toolkit. And what I just want to like say really briefly is there's a couple of routes to accessing the material. So we go, go around the country doing workshops. And our workshops are, if you can believe it, they're actually fun. Like I actually make them both practical and fun. So that's so that's one. So we go all around the country doing doing that. So you can contact us through the website if you're interested in that. That's one route to the material. But but in the past you know year or so, we've produced other routes to the material. So for example, our main our our flagship thing is this something is something called the White Ally Toolkit Workbook which is like a big 300-page book that has all sorts of exercises and reflection tools, and it gives you guidance about how to deal with eight different topics, you know, unconscious bias, uh, white privilege, people of color are lazy, and down the list. And it also gives, like, suppose you're not trying to just react to people's statements, but you're trying to take somebody up in the ladder of understanding. You know, what, you don't start out with structural racism, right? You start out, here's a sequence of conversations and topics you have, and then there's a few, if, you know, there's other reflective tools. Like if you're on your journey to do this, here's here's some things to think about. 
So there's that. And then we kept people wanted to meet in groups, like because people learn better in groups because you're, you know, you you learn something, you want to go out and practice and come back with other people who are learning it. So we have a discussion guide for that. Um, so we have the discussion group, um, the, the discussion group leaders guide. And then, but also we have a third, so those are sort of two, one and a half routes, same same product. Then we have the Compassionate Warrior Bootcamp, which is like a, a, a 30 days of a daily instruction that are all, that are sequenced so that by the end of that, you go from the beginning, you're at like, how do I li- relax and listen? And by the end, you're doing the race method with a racism skeptic. I call them racism skeptics instead of deniers because I want to call them something that they feel respected if they were in the room. So there's there's the Compassionate Warrior boot, uh, boot Camp, which is designed to be done by itself, but there are people who are meeting in groups around that. And then there's we have a video course. We have the Instructed Race Method video course, which has worksheets, et cetera. And some, group, some groups are meeting. It's designed for individuals. Some groups are meeting around that. So the point is to have multiple routes to the material. Some people want to read. Some people want to watch a video. Some people need a daily instruction. So we're trying to provide all of that. And then, then what, we're, what we're doing, we have a Kickstarter that is ending on February 16th, where we're trying to create a real immersive video course that more mimics the workshop. So if people want to contribute to Kickstarter, they can also go to the website, whiteallytoolkit.com, and help us get there. We're at like 95%. Any contributions would be helpful to join the cause of trying to dismantle racism. That is awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. And if people want to follow you on Twitter... Where can they do that? At the dialogue guy. And there's also, so there's, that's my uh, Twitter handle. There's also at Ally Toolkit, which is the one for the project. But either one of those will work. And I would love to hear from people. And I would, you know, again, we go all around the country to do these workshops. We even have a revenue sharing model. So if you're a community group or church or surge group or whatever, whatever peace, peace and justice organization wants to, wants to get involved, let us know. And typically when we come to town, we work out a kind of revenue share where I mean, the groups have walked away with like $1,000. We can't put one butt in one seat in anybody's community. So we try to set up that whole system so that people are incentivized to like make those final phone calls or emails because not only will they be doing good for the world, they'll be doing good for their own organization. Well, thank you again so much. We will put links to all of that in our show notes. And we just really appreciate you being here and the, the conversation and the work that you're doing. Because I like you guys so much. And I'm so appreciative of being on on this show. I'm going to give a discount code for two weeks from today. You can get 20% off of your purchase of purchases on the website with the discount code Pantsuit. So I'm so grateful. Go to our website and use the Pantsuit discount code and 20% off. And I really appreciate hearing from people. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for our conversation with Dr. David Kent. We hope it was helpful. We will be back in your ears on Tuesday. And until then, go buy our book and keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. And thanks for making us sound better and smarter, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our production assistant, which means we could not live without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you so much, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help make the show better.
Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Learn more about our live events that we're involved in and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with us and members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.